Welcome to the Marketing Stir Podcast by Starista, probably the most entertaining marketing podcast you're going to put in your ears. I'm Jared Walls, Associate Producer and Starista's Creative Copy Manager. The goal of this podcast is to chat with industry leaders to get their take on the current challenges of the market, but also have a little fun along the way. In this episode, Vincent and AJ talk to David Danziger, Vice President of Data Partnerships at the Trade Desk. They discussed the recent release of the Solomar platform, the necessity for unified ID, as well as Danziger's love for the Detroit Red Wings. AJ discusses his trip to New York, and Vincent talks about the wrong sport. Give it a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Starista's The Marketing Stir. I am so happy to be here, extra happy. We'll get to why in a minute. So many great things happened the last few weeks here and today. An amazing guest. That's why I get happy. But ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know, Starista, who are we? Starista, we're an identity marketing company. We have our own technology. We have our own data, business to business, business to consumer. We help clients utilize that data to get new customers. Who doesn't want new customers to enrich their data? We own our own DSP. We uh, can do connected TV. We do a lot here at Starista. Give me a call or email me, I should say. Maybe I won't give my phone number on this podcast, but I will give you my email address, vincent at starista.com. Email me. Tell us what you think of the podcast. Tell us what you think of me. Tell us how we could work together. Oh, I'm so happy to be back. And I am so happy to have my co-host. He recently had a drink named after him at a recent event. We call him the San Antonio Slayer. I call him my CEO. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. AJ Gupta, what's going on? Hey, Vincent, what a fun two weeks we had in New York. So it was good to be back at our old chomping grounds at Refinery Rooftop, uh, share a few drinks and also meet a lot of people in New York I had not met before. Absolutely. It was, uh, we, were, we were counting these days down. People who listened to the podcast, they were like, you know, when's he arriving? What's going on? It was a great time. It was, you got mixed in a little vacation there, uh, some fun for yourself, but it was all business when you were with me, uh, having a good time, meeting new people, some clients. So it was a good time. Um, yeah, my voice is glad that you're gone because, you know, all the, we have different meetings and uh, happy hours and it was like, great to see people, people I haven't seen before. It was uh, awesome. Did you enjoy yourself? Yeah, no, it was definitely, I think we made up for some of the lost months of uh, drinking there. So uh. <laughs> yeah. that's it. I know in New York, it's, uh, you know, New York is back. It's been great. I think it's going to be truly back when Broadway opens up all the shows. So that should be fun. But no, it was great to see everyone. Yes, Refinery Rooftop, also Grand Morsey that put on a great event. Shout out to them, our New Jersey teammates, our New York teammates. It was a great time. Tamarind Restaurant. Let's give them a shout out. You know, maybe they'll shave a little bit off that bill next time I'm there. They probably won't. They're not listening to the podcast. They're not in marketing, but it's okay. But AJ, like I said, a variety of great reasons to be happy that a you were here and our guest i this guest i love this guest i also like the company 
quite a bit. I love that company that he works for. Uh, you might have heard of it. I hope you heard of it. If not, you will certainly hear of it today. We also, you know, this gentleman knows my wife, uh, used to work with my wife. That's always great. And uh, we're happy to have him here on the Marketing Stir. Ladies and gentlemen, let me please welcome the Vice President of Data Partnerships at the Trade Desk. Ladies and gentlemen, David Danzinger. What's going on, David? Hey, Vincent. Hey, Jay. Great to see you. Thanks for having me on. Excited wow. about this. We too are excited. I uh, was hoping to meet you in person when you were in New York a few weeks ago. You were just there like just for like a day. You just vanished. And then, but it's okay. There'll be more <laughs> of those. I know you're in uh, Tennessee oh, yeah. area. Hope to meet yeah. you in person uh, one day. But uh, it is great to have you, David. So, David, tell our audience you know, the trade desk in, in our world, we're so entrenched in that world. We, you know, we, we love the trade desk, but tell our listeners out there first about the trade desk. And then I'd love to hear your exact role within the company there. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Vincent. So the trade desk is a media buying platform. So we, we function to help clients, both advertisers and, and more specifically and more commonly agencies with their media buying. And so we started back in 2009 as kind of we really with a heavy focus at the time on display, but have extended out into mobile and audio, video, connected television, all the different channels and, and increasingly digital out of home. So media buying platform for, for agencies and brands to reach their customers. And uh, as far as my role, I'm the vice president of data partnerships at the trade desk. And so uh, data partnerships in, in trade desk world, we've always wanted our clients to be able to have uh, as much data as possible and be as data driven in their buying processes as they could be. And so for us, that includes uh, audiences, uh, including Starista. Obviously, we, we like working with Starista, both, both for B2B and business to consumer data, as you noted. But so audience data can be identity data so that we can do cross device and other things. Uh, measurement data so that customers can ultimately understand whether what they're buying is doing what they hope it will do. And, uh, and with that, different mechanisms that people can bring the best audiences on of their own. And then finally, the last, last portion of data I should mention, the types of partnerships uh, are contextual and brand safety and, and measurement partnerships. And actually that you referenced that I knew your wife, that was how I met your wife back at Pier 39 and then on at Double Verify too. Yeah, absolutely. She speaks very highly of you. And, you know, we, I want to get into the data a little bit as well because of your specific role, David, always understanding like what you're looking for in a data provider. So we'll get to that. But before uh, we get to that later on, I want to understand, because we asked this question of all of our guests, how you got in to this business, how you got into, you know, the, the marketing business, the DSP, and then, and then specifically, you know, with data partnerships, because Data partnerships, I'm involved in partnerships myself. That's not a role you go to school for. So I'm just curious how you got into this business. It's, it's, a, it's a funny question and hopefully a sort of funny answer because so I, I came out of uh, an MBA program with, with no experience to speak of in marketing or data, but there was a, a, a startup company. This was in Austin, Texas that had some, some grads from our program um, that was doing this is, this is late 90s, so this was pretty advanced at the time, but they were doing neural network data mining for marketing purposes. And the interview for my internship went something like this. So David, uh, we're glad you're interested in the company. Do you 
What do you know about neural networks? Nothing. Uh, what do you know about using data for marketing? Uh, nothing. Uh, I hope I was more creative in the answers, but effectively that was, those were the answers. Uh, they offered the job to someone else smartly, but that person at the last minute accepted another internship. So they fell back on me. And so that was what got me started in both data and marketing worked for that company for a while, but then from there moved purely really onto the data side with a, a company called Axiom, spent the, the better part of a decade, actually a little over a decade, all in with Axiom. And, and that got me exposed to data as it was used heavily in direct marketing, but then at the tail end of that tenure, sort of moving into how it was used in online buying because so many of those characteristics carried over as well. And so that was that was the path, but you're right. I, I, you know, certainly did not go to school with the thought that, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a data expert and make a career out of it as it relates to media. I, I, I truly feel like I sort of lucked backwards into it and it's, it's worked out very well. Yeah, it certainly has. And thank you to that other guy who didn't show up or no because we wouldn't have David in our industry. <laughs> so thank you to the other guy. I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> So, so, David, one of the things we keep hearing about in context with Trade Desk with a lot of press releases is this word unified ID or Trade Desk ID, and uh, we hear that quite a bit. So would love to just uh, understand what that's all about and, you know, your views on it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, AJ. You bet. So the unified ID 2.0 is, is something that it's being championed by the Trade Desk, but now it's really part of a, a broad-based industry open ecosystem coalition uh, where we just happen to be one part of it. A lot of, a lot of the capabilities originated and predated work that the Trade Desk was doing as well. But the, the gist of it is this, when, when it became apparent that third-party cookies were going to start phasing out. So you see Mozilla had phased out third-party cookies. Uh, Apple had done this in Safari. Um, the Brave browser had done this. And then, you know, the, the biggest of the bigs, when, when Google said uh, that they were going to phase out third-party cookies, they originally announced this in January 2020, that they were going to do it in January 2022. The, it felt like the, the, all of us that used cookies in various ways for identity as a backbone needed something that was going to replace it. And organizations like the IAB Tech Lab, uh, as well as a lot of other orgs and companies like us that work in those spaces, started looking for a solution that would, that would take the place of third-party cookies, but also improve upon the capabilities. So with Unified ID 2.0, which the Trade Desk really started to champion about a year, a little over a year ago from when we're recording this, we really thought in terms of four things that we wanted it to be for the benefit of everybody in the, in the open ecosystem. All of it with the idea of continuing to support the idea that ultimately the content that all of us enjoy on the internet is, is really funded by relevant advertising. And in, in order to have relevant advertising, you have to have some sort of foundation for, for anonymized identity. So what we wanted, the four, four components was we wanted something open source and interoperable meaning that it wasn't proprietary to the trade desk and isn't proprietary to the trade desk, but was going to be ultimately free and available to the entire ecosystem. So that was one. The second thing was we wanted independent governance. So it wasn't, again, the trade desk 
defining what's appropriate or not appropriate, but a code of conduct managed by an independent body uh, that, that could govern how data gets used and the identities get used. The third component was that it should be something secure and privacy friendly. So in, in this case, it was a hashed and encrypted email identifier. It may extend to other things too, but hashed and encrypted email so that it could, it could be secure and very privacy friendly. But then the fourth thing, and perhaps most important, was this idea of the consumer getting better transparency and control over how they could express preferences and opt-outs. Uh, whereas in the world of cookies, you sort of, the, the sheer, the overall consumer experience was this pop-up that says, hey, do you accept cookies or don't you? And most consumers have no reason to know really what that is. The idea with this is that there's a much more sort of inclusive dialogue where the consumer gets a chance to hear, okay, here's how your hashed email is going to get used. You're not going to get spammed. It's purely to serve you more relevant advertising. Do you accept? So those four components are sort of the framework for Unified ID 2.0. And as we kind of work with other orgs around the ecosystem, whether it's advertisers on one side, publishers on the other side, and everybody in the middle, it creates a mechanism where they can talk with each other and have a clear understanding of identity where they have to follow that code of conduct, but where they all have the opportunity to contribute to the code, make it better, make the system work better for everyone. David, that's the best explanation of unified ID I've heard. That's amazing. Yeah. I was like, I just learned something, right? <laughs> I love it. Thanks. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to save that clip somewhere. <laughs> so the other one related to your answer, David, so obviously there's a lot of stuff going on with iOS and Google. Uh, are there any immediate impacts that Trade Desk is seeing and how are you guys preparing for it? Yeah, I think um, we're we're seeing some impact, but not it's it's early days yet. One of the one of the biggest changes you mentioned you mentioned Apple's changes with iOS 14, where um, it's it too sort of puts front and center for consumers the idea that hey, you do you want to opt in for tracking effectively, which which has sort of a negative connotation, but we've started to see where uh, depending on the timing, how it's put in front of consumers there's differences in how much impact that's really having. So we've seen that with, with the other changes with some of the, the announcements by Google, very little change yet, just because um, hasn't gone into effect yet. And in fact, uh, within, I guess, the, the month before we, we recorded this podcast, they, they extended the timeline. So we haven't really seen impacts yet, but in some ways the, the writing is on the wall for the idea of giving consumers a much greater say in how their data gets used in, uh, in, in advertising and what consumers want known. And so to that end, we've really gotten active and, and continue to try to push quickly as, as we've seen a lot of our, our colleagues in, at other companies, other parts of the industry doing the same thing, whether it's with Unified ID 2.0 or other forms of targeting that extend into cookie-less environments and things so that they can continue to reach consumers with meaningful advertising, even when the time likely comes that cookies go away, that it's a purely opt-in regime. All of that is ultimately a better thing, we think, for, uh, for how advertising is going to work in the future. And David, you know, speaking of you know, uh, social posts, we have seen 
uh, quite a bit around because yeah, I follow the trade desk, always interested in, in, in what you guys are doing there. Uh, the recent version of the release of Solomar. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this is uh, Solomar is something we, we've been really, really excited about in the lead up to it. Um, we, we released it on July the 7th and it felt like, you know, sort of a long time in coming and all the different things that were going into it. But with, with Solomar, we really wanted to do three things. Um, and goes goes back to something I had mentioned earlier, which is something that the trade desk has always sort of deeply believed in from from its earliest days was the idea that the more data you can bring to bear in your media buying, the better it can be. And then as as sort of another part of that, the more media buyers and and traders, if you will, if you think in terms of sort of real-time bidding parlance, the more traders can think about how to achieve their goals versus sort of shifting budgets around, the more successful uh, advertisers are going to be. So we put that together. That was a, maybe a long-winded intro to tell you, here were, here were three of the things that we really wanted to do with Solomar. The first was to make it very easy for advertisers to use their own first-party data and bring first-party data into the trade desk for media buying. Um, that's something that I think uh, Facebook and Google have done a phenomenal job with in their platforms to, to enable first-party buying. And when we think of the most powerful data of all, uh, first-party data and what a brand has and knows about their clients, about their customers, that's really the most powerful of all. And so, so we wanted easy on-ramps there. The second component was the idea of making buying goal-based. So we, we start every campaign in Solomar with the buyer uh, describing what the goals of the campaign are, which lets us put um, some, some what we call COA for our artificial intelligence solution, lets us start to layer artificial intelligence in to help them achieve those goals, but the buyer can override the artificial intelligence anyway, which is a good thing. Sometimes we think it's going to be better in most cases, but humans are great at hypotheses Computers are great at computing. So we try to let both parties do the best. So start with first-party data, uh, layering goal-based buying. And then the third part that's really interesting and a big step forward, we feel like, with Solomar is bringing real-world measurement very deeply and intertwined into the platform. So where historically a lot of the measurements for online campaigns were based on um, measurements like viewability or not much fraud or... Uh, things like that or clicks or things, things that were interesting proxy measures, but not ultimately what a chief marketing officer cares about. We brought real world measures from partners into it. So uh, did, the, did, did buying actually increase? And we use partners who can measure at SKU level data, things like that for, for that part. Did a, an auto customer actually show up on the lot to check out the auto? So things like location data that, that can come into that. And other things like that for real world metrics to actually identify the success of campaigns based on the client's original goal. And, you know, I, I wanted to kind of piggyback on that, you know, Solomar being, being new, a lot of these different features, but for years, when I talk to people, when I'm on the phone with clients, a lot of people are, are mentioning the trade desk in, in such a great way. It has been synonymous with uh, excellent solution. Well, what do you attribute that to? 
Uh, well, thank you for saying that. I feel like uh, it's we, we love to hear that, um, and it's it's great to hear. I think the there were a few things that that I would attribute it to. One is that we we did have, as I noted, the really early emphasis on on data and bringing data the to the fore, and that that reflects well not only on us and and our clients, but also on the data partners that we work with as well. Because obviously, the better the data, the more successful our clients can be. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing that, that I would attribute it to is the, if, if you will, the, the self-serve but hybrid model of customer, customer service that the trade desk brings. And by that, I mean, probably 90% of our customers are hands-on keyboard themselves where they're actually executing the campaign. So as a result of that, we really put a heavy emphasis on the, the right sort of software capabilities being in place uh, for, for a user, whether it's a power user or somewhat less capable user to do it well. But that, uh, the, the, the hybrid that I mentioned is that for all of our clients, we've always had sort of a, a business development component for it, but then account manager, client service and trader expertise where we help them along the way, even if we're not hands-on keyboard for them, but we help teach them to be successful uh, al along the way. And so teaching and learning as part of what, what trade desk customers get, I think has been, has been a heavy part of that success as well. David, on the talk coming back to the Solomar platform, is that something you see as a replacement for some of the third-party onboarding solutions in the future? It could be, but it actually builds on a lot of those. Actually, it just has it has some of the API capabilities that enable some of those third-party solutions to come to the fore. So we partner very closely with our friends at LiveRamp as one mechanism for onboarding. But the other thing, you know, that that's sort of a uh, helpful benefit related to Unified ID two is sort of that common language where any clients who have emails can hash them, transition them into unified ID2s, which can be ingested into the platform for buying. And so I don't know that it necessarily takes the place of, but, but more, more helpfully sits alongside of, I think, other third-party onboarding solutions. And, um, and there's, you know, a lot of our clients are very embedded with other third-party onboarding solutions, and we want to help them be successful as well. It's good for all of us. Now that all makes sense. Sounds like uh, these days, especially with all the changes going on, sort of a multiple company approach is the best way to extend the reach. Yes. Uh, so one of the things, you know, besides being a partner to Trade Desk, uh, we have also been using your Edge Academy to uh, onboard, especially some of our uh, younger employees that are not from the uh, industry. Would love to learn more about how did this come about and uh, the background. For it. I, I, I thank you for asking about that, AJ, because we, we always love getting to talk about it. And actually, it's it, it probably dovetails on the, the two questions ago about part of what, what we think has made the trade desk successful. When, when we were getting going in 2009 and, and the next few years beyond that, one of the things that was really apparent was that there were a lot of people coming into our industry for whom the concepts of programmatic buying, real-time bidding, and even, even higher-end concepts within marketing were, were newer territory. And so 
the the Edge Academy started as, in all candor, the the earliest origins were some internal trainings at the trade desk. As new employees joined the trade desk, we would um, we would do these sessions to explain how does real time bidding work. What does it mean that there's a hundred milliseconds for what happens uh, at the at the publisher side to come across into an ad exchange for a, a bid request for determination by the DSP on what to bid using third-party data, how much to bid, all of that happening. Like that that sort of core technical underpinning was one piece of it, but then the, the broader concepts of why it works, how to make advertisers better, uh, all of that became part of Edge Academy so that not only as a as sort of a mechanism for how do you use the trade desk, because for a long time that really wasn't a piece of it at all. It was really all about how do you use the, the components of programmatic to really get better outcomes for your clients in a meaningful, measurable way so that it ultimately helps all of us that are in programmatic deliver better results for clients as programmatic continue to grow? Yeah, I, I remember seeing it. And like AJ mentioned, several of our own employees were utilizing yeah. it. I remember seeing people and I don't know if it was free before, because it's certainly amazing content you could easily charge for. But I know the Trade Desk during uh, 2020, the pandemic, offered that at no charge. And that was great for people. You know, talk about thought leadership. Just like, here, learn about the industry, get certified in a variety of different you know, different classes, different methods of this industry. So that was great. I, I love, I definitely want to mention that. I know it's still out there for people to check out, but I remember seeing that. So we thank was, you for that. Well, thank you. It was, it was big for us too, because I, I know you guys experienced this as well, where you had a lot of people joining your companies during the period where they couldn't, you know, in, under normal circumstances, you might have a buddy system or a mentor system or manager new employee where they're looking over the shoulder and learning how, how to do different things in that way. In the absence of that, we, we felt like this was actually one thing in, in during the COVID period where we really could help sort of everyone get up to speed, even if they couldn't be sitting with, with, with somebody right next to them uh, to ask questions, things like that. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And, and David, let's talk about data. Let's talk about that as far as partnerships. And because I don't want every data provider listening to this to reach out to you and bother you. I'd only want <laughs> ones that you might be interested in, if at all, you know, go easy with David. But um, as far as looking for the right data provider, what do you look for? Yeah, it's, it's something that I think has changed a little bit over time. But, but some of the core tenants are very similar. And, and the way we think of it is there's kind of a combination proactive and reactive part of it. So the reactive part in some ways is very easy, which is a lot of times we will have clients say to us, hey, you know, I'm really thinking of doing XYZ and I've heard about this company that's doing interesting things in that regard. And so in, in those scenarios, it's, it's sort of client-driven and we're reacting and reaching out, understanding more about uh, what it is that a particular data company might bring. But the proactive part, I think, is, is uh, I sometimes say the strategic part, which maybe, I don't know if those really are interchangeable in this context, but the, 
the proactive part, we're, we're usually looking for someone that uh, fills a niche either one from a geographic standpoint. So if we're looking to move into a new market or have recently moved into a new market, one of the things that we really want to be able to do is offer a fairly full suite of, of capabilities in the same way that I mentioned uh, at the outset that we think in terms of audience data, we think in terms of identity and cross device, we think in terms of contextual and brand safety, and we think in terms of measurement, we want those same capabilities maybe not day one when we start in, in, in a given country or market, but, but pretty close following on so that we're not talking about these incomplete solutions where we're saying, hey, this is the best way to do marketing. Oh, but we don't have the offline measurement part. We'll get back to you on that. We really wanna be able to bring all those things in. So one part is the, the geographic part. And then that, that sort of dovetails on the second part that I alluded to in the first part, which is, the, the capabilities within a given geography. So if, if we're lacking uh, identity capabilities in India, as we go into India, then we wanna find partners that can do that. If we're doing new, new things in Italy, which incidentally, those are two of our newest markets that we're, we're, we're going into. If we're doing that, we wanna find great Italian data partners. And, and so uh, we think in terms of things that fill geographic uh, or capability needs. And then, then one, one more thing that I'll just mention quickly is if, there's, if there are some differences as relates to particular channels that are emerging as strategic, that's, that's the other thing we look for for data. So mm -hmm. if, if we think about in, in the current environment, everybody, uh, you mentioned it in your intro for Scaristo, we do this with, with connected television being an increasingly important part of the business and buying there are certain types of data that are most powerful for connected television uh, and understanding how to help shift linear TV dollars into CTV dollars and have them well targeted. And so we look for the data sets that fill a, a niche strategically in the channel stand in the channel area as well. And I just want to piggyback on something there uh, because the international piece, right? That's that's a that's something that comes up quite a bit about international, filling those gaps. Talk a little bit about that, David, where you're expanding both data sets, the trade desk as a company. Yeah, that's that's been one of the, I will say personally, has been one of the most exciting things to be part of as the trade desk has continued to grow um, because we, we certainly started as, as a U.S. company, but now we really think of ourselves as, and it sounds a little hokey, but it's, it's very true as a global company that happens to be headquartered in California. So um, with that, we, we in, within a few years, we had opened offices in London, Hamburg, Singapore, Sydney, and continued to expand. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis on what we see are really growth markets in Asia. Like we, we see great opportunity in Indonesia. So we've had an office there for about five years now. Uh, Korea, Japan, China is, is something that we've invested in for a long time. Um, Europe is, is a great market for us as well. And I, I feel a little ridiculous referencing a market as Europe because the reality is, as you guys well know, 
that it's an entirely different thing operating in UK versus France versus Germany versus Spain versus Italy and so on. And so we actually have offices now in each of those five markets that I mentioned as well. We do a lot of business in South America, though we have yet to actually put an office there. So remains to be seen some of the other places, but in international expansion continues to be really exciting and a key area for us too. Yeah, David, I think one of the remarkable things you guys have done that a lot of your competitors can't or, or have been unable to do is just expand globally. Uh, I think a lot of them are focused on the US and uh, can't really handle the, both the data needs as well as the uh, regulation uh, that comes with expanding. So kudos to you guys on that. Thanks, yeah, it's been exciting. So, you know, what are, what's kind of the ideal customer profile look like for you, both within U.S. and as you expand into other new marketplaces internationally? That's, it, it varies a little bit, but, but there are definitely some things that I, I would say are common among the ideal customer. The, the trade desk started with and has continued with the philosophy that agencies, to a large degree, are still, still really central to the buying experience for, for media. Um, there, was, there was a period I, five, six years ago where it felt like you, you would read a new story every day in ad exchange or media posts, what have you, about brands in-housing their media buying. Uh, and in some cases that was the case, but in other cases it was really sort of a different way of managing the, uh, the vendors that they were actually using to still execute the buys. So we, our, our premise was always that media buying ideally gets simplified, but the reality is it's gotten in many ways more complex just in terms of the analytics that are brought to bear, the mechanisms for measurement, the proliferation of channels, optimizing across all of that. And most brands, want to focus on doing the things that they do well, which is creating and packaging soap, toothpaste, automobiles, you know, the, their, if you will, their core competencies. So back to your question, what's, what's a natural uh, place for the trade desk or a best customer profile for the trade desk? Starts with agencies, but more and more works with brands who want to understand the technologies their agencies are using. So we, we work a lot through agencies. We work a lot with, I would say, more sophisticated media buyers typically, because I think we would be the first to admit that our platform, while we've done a lot to improve the UI and make it easier and easier to use and starting from a goal base and executing, it's not necessarily the simplest, but that's partly because we want the buyers to have a lot of control to tweak the, the automated components and say, hey, I think I can do better using this. So. Uh, so it tends to be a little bit more sophisticated buyer. And more and more, we want somebody who is thinking in terms of not just the metrics that they've historically learned about for online marketing, but thinking more and more about, hey, what are the ultimate things that are going to make my client successful all the way up to the chief marketing officer level who you know, doesn't wake up thinking about viewability, doesn't wake up thinking about clicks, but he or she more likely wakes up thinking about, hey, am I actually achieving my marketing results? So it starts with agencies on to brands, tends to be sophisticated buyers, and those who are thinking about sort of the big picture, real world results. 
Yeah, we talked a little bit uh, before the podcast started about the world opening up and uh, traveling a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, but it's been a little while. So how have you adapted both personally as well as within your department and company in this kind of uh, remote uh, environment and not being able to see clients and uh, partners? Yeah, I, I, I'll be the first to tell you that I, I am... I was jealous actually when when you and Vincent were talking at the outset about uh, the recent recent uh, work in New York, getting together with clients, with partners, and most of all with with the team. I think that's it's fabulous that we're getting ready and, and sort of starting to have that experience. But um, for for us, it's been it's it's certainly been interesting, as I think it has been for a lot of companies, sort of figuring out what's going to work. One thing that I think worked well for, for the trade desk was we, we were, we have been a video culture for virtually the entire time I've been at the trade desk. Uh, albeit the video has improved dramatically with zoom. We were, but we were actively using zoom pre pandemic. And, and so it has helped facilitate, I think realistically a sense of camaraderie and teamwork that you can get it's still not the same as being in the office with somebody. I think all of us can legitimately admit that. But I, when, when I see you, AJ, when I see you, Vince, and I feel more like I know you than if we were just talking on the phone. So video culture is one thing that I think has served us very well. But at the same time, within the trade desk, I think right at this stage, roughly a third of our, of, of our team, of our employees have come to the trade desk in the time since the pandemic started. And so they are just now getting the opportunities in most of our offices to get to meet their teammates in person. One thing that we've tried to do though, that I think has helped as well, um, the Trade Desk has always annually held a Palooza where our whole company gets together in one place. And it's, you know, obviously it's some fun stuff that's, and social things, but there's a lot of strategy. There's a chance to get to know your teammates from other parts of the world, from in, in other uh, functional areas, things like that. Um, and while we couldn't all be together, we have continued to have uh, Paloozas where we sort of do, you know, do some of the same presentations, have those conversations, have workshops, have get to know you mixers. Um, it's, it's, but, but I think anyone who, who feels like it's the same is, is missing the boat. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to getting back out with partners, getting back out with clients, getting back out with teammates and, um, you know, Zoom with partners has been great as far as it goes, but it's, it's not the same as, you know, getting, getting in a conference room and in front of a whiteboard or, you know, breaking bread at a restaurant or, or having beverages, any of those things that really sort of seal the personal connection that they can make partnerships work. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I like that Paloozas. What a, what a great name. Uh, David, can you talk about some of your previous, previous experiences uh, at Axiom and Merkel? You know, it's companies that we know they've uh, both been on the podcast yeah. that helped you develop early in your career to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. I feel incredibly lucky actually to have had the experience at, at Axiom and at Merkel, which incidentally, it was it was at those places where I first met AJ along the way, first got mm -hmm. to know Starista. So I mean, it, um, the like, and, and that speaks to part of what I think the experience with Axiom and Merkel brought, brought for me. So 
the, the first thing I'll say, as I mentioned, I'd spent over a decade at Axiom and some of the talent at Axiom, uh, just phenomenal and is sort of spread out into other parts of the industry. And that's that combination of, of being around people who are so extremely intelligent and Axiom, you know, I think probably a lot of your listeners who are sophisticated marketers already know, but Axiom was one of the real pioneers in consumer database marketing. Uh, originally uh, one of the first sort of list compilers in a sophisticated way. Um, and so that expertise in both identity and consumer data with so many of the principles that came out of direct mail translating into the online world, those were so helpful for me in terms of a foundational level of understanding of, of what it is that marketers care about and how technology can help deliver it. And then with Merkle, again, incredibly intelligent in group of individuals. Uh, the thing that was a little different at Merkle, I think, that was helpful was uh, Merkle was, was more of a hybrid agency focus as well. So while there was great database technology and data, uh, data-centric approach, very much more sort of an agency model of thinking about things. And now, of course, part of the agency of, of the Dentsu family um, but that, that mindset helped me understand more about what agencies are thinking about and what buyers are thinking about as well. And so um, those, those, both of those experiences were, were extremely powerful, as well as the, the sort of the people I got to meet along the way that, that helped get me where I am. Mm-hmm. And David, something I'm, I'm curious about within your role, is, are you, is your role talking to people on the front lines, on the sales team? understanding maybe some of the data needs of the clients and then you reacting that way or are you always on the hunt for the next great inventory or is it a little bit of both there's um, there's elements of both uh, and it's it's changed as as the trade desk has gotten bigger and candidly as the data partnerships team has gotten bigger too so Early on, I, I was leading the data partnerships team and there were, you know, at first it was just me and then a, a small group of us. And so there it was very much sort of whatever needed to be done uh, at any given moment. So sometimes it was client facing, sometimes it was on the hunt for data partner. But as, as the team has grown as, and as the needs have grown, I would say the, the, the roles that each of us play get sliced a little bit more thinly and more focused into different areas. So my focus over these these last couple of years has really been with the holding companies that have acquired data companies. So think IPG with Axiom, think Publicis with Epsilon, think Dentsu with Merkle. And then those that haven't like Omnicom, WPP, WPP's done some acquisition, but they, all of them are trying to make better use of data from assets that are either core to what they've got or assets that they've rented in some way. So helping them with their data capabilities and how that can get used inside the trade desk. And then the other part has been sort of growing our international footprint. Um, and, and those two things have really been my, my focus over the last, last few years as we've sliced more thinly. But within that, I get a lot of chances to interact with clients and partners, both new and existing, and do it on a more global fashion, which has been fun, uh, really fun and fantastic. David, last question for me. It's our signature question. So I'm sure with your title, you get tons of LinkedIn messages and uh, unsolicited, unsolicited emails. So would love to yeah. know, you know, what annoys you and what really gets a response from you. Yeah. Um, 
that's it's a great question too i because i i try to be open-minded on linkedin mainly because we've all been there where for whatever reason you want to get in touch with this particular person and ask a specific question or get in some way start to network and so maybe that that gets a little bit to what i like and i don't like if someone can very quickly identify realistically why they are reaching out and that it's in some way relevant to me um i'm i'm inclined to res respond and 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 you know at least try to communicate and maybe set something to understand is this is there something here for us for for whether it's the trade desk and what this person's offering or a personal connection something there is there something there but if it's if it's clearly just a blitz email that they're sending to everyone that has no relevance you know, I kind of feel like, come on. Uh, this the other thing at this point. And this is probably not fair, but if it's if I see it's somebody where I have two connections in common or something like that, my immediately my antenna goes up and I'm like, come on, who who is this person? Did, did they choose me out of a hat? Uh, that that feels unlikely, but that's that's maybe not fair. But I don't know. Is that close to yours, AJ? I know you should be asking the question, but I, I'm curious. Is that similar? Yeah. You view it. You got to yeah, flatter I, I AJ, that, then that's well, what he I does. Feel like the, I feel like the two of you are some of the master sort of connectors and networkers, partly <laughs> with this, but just in your roles too. And AJ, well, I've known him, you know, close to a decade, if not more at this point on, on, on things like this. And so I'm curious, is this how you view it too? Yeah, I think I stopped you on a trade floor, trade show floor <laughs> and harassed you the first time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think the biggest thing I see now is uh, the younger salespeople don't want to put in any effort at all. They mm -hmm. just send you, as soon as they connect, they send you something very salesy. They are not looking at you. They're not really sending a custom messages. Mm -hmm. And we have the same struggle with our salespeople as well. They'll say, well, we sent out 2000 emails and didn't get a response it's like well did you customize even one of them <laughs> so yeah. I, I do think it's a little bit of a lost art form just because it's so easy now to send messages out yeah i think so and I, i'm more of a personal approach and yeah. you you would think I, I have a nice network and I, I appreciate my network, but I'm surprisingly as people like, oh, you, you so outgoing. You seem like you just let anyone in. No, no. I, I'm really, I'm the same way, David. For me, you have to have like 40 connections or something or, or, mm -hmm. or a customized message. Mm -hmm. I'm very like one-on-one. -on -one. I, I like that connection on my own. But so, yeah, you're not in, you're, you're, you're in the normal, right? It, it's, that it's, that it's, makes it's me feel better. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, I, I actually, somebody from Oracle reached out to me and uh, it was such a nice custom message, just to SDR. And I said, hey, uh, we're not really looking for your solution, but if you need a new job, this is the perfect <laughs> message. Yeah. Well, like, yeah. And SDRs are one of those things where they're on the front line, you know, oftentimes it's yeah. an entry level position where they're just trying to, you know, do their job. Yeah. Oh, I'm nice to everyone. It's just a, a matter of, you know, I keep, I like to keep where I could say, oh, hey, David, meet so-and-so like that sort of connection. Um, I, so I have a hard time picturing either one of you being not nice to someone. On, <laughs> I, I just, can't, I mean, I know there are people in our industry where they may, they may not be nice every time, but I, with you two guys, I have a hard time picturing it. I gotta say. Well, we appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much. So David, let me get to know you just for a couple of minutes here before we have to go. I love these 
these podcasts because they go so quickly uh, because I feel like we, we know you, but personal, like, what do you like doing? I know you're a Lions fan. So did you get the Jared Goff Jersey uh, yet? Or uh, you still holding on to that Matt Stafford? I know we lost AJ with that comment about football, but tell me what you like to do for fun. You got you got the wrong sport where I'm a Detroit fan though. Uh, I have, oh, you flipped. That's right. You're a Tennessee fan I'm, I'm now. A, I'm a I'm a Red Wings fan. For I'm a diehard Detroit Red Wings fan. Which oh, is, that's right. Uh, yeah, that's a hockey team, AJ. That's no knock on the Lions, but uh, I just never have. Been. Oh, good, anyway, good. Detroit Red Wings fan. Uh, but yeah, other things that I like to do. I mean, I've got. I, I'm married. I have three kids who are all sort of university age or just emerging out of university. So I spend a lot of time with those guys, but I love reading. I love uh, running and um, yeah, I mean, those are the things I like to do. It's uh, it's, uh, I know that's a super exciting answer, running and reading. And, and the Detroit, uh, well, the Red Wings, that's exciting, you know, at least. Um, but no, that's, uh, that's it. Hey, what, what am I doing nowadays? Like I, I've got two kids and I'm hoping the New York Giants have a good team and, and uh, that's it. And it hasn't been great the last, uh, six years hey, with, with the Giants. With the kids, every been every yeah. year is new. Every year is new. Exactly. Zero, zero record. Uh, you yeah. know, they would start, everyone's undefeated. David, this has been absolutely amazing. We really appreciate you spending some time with us. Keep up the amazing work at the trade desk. Yeah. Check out the trade desk. Check out the Edge Academy. You know, go, go to the website there. That's David Danziger. He's the vice president of partnerships, of data partnerships there at the Trade Desk. I'm the vice president of B2B products here at Starista, Vincent Petrofessa. That's AJ Gupta. This has been another episode of The Marketing Stir. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to The Marketing Stir podcast by Starista. Please like, rate, and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, email us at themarketingstir at starista.com. And thanks for listening.